Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Wow, buddy! You look healthy and happy. Veterinary surgeon and natural pet food pioneer John Burns knows the positive impact a natural diet has on our beloved pets. That's why he developed Burns Pet Nutrition. Hmm. Maybe I should try some of your pet food myself. Okay, okay. I'll start with a salad. For natural, no nasty, wholesome recipes, choose Burns Pet Nutrition. Available from veterinary clinics and all good pet shops across Ireland. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cocaine Cowboys, The Deadly Rise of Ireland's Drug Lords, the live show is on sale now. We're on the road on February 10th at the Lime Tree Theatre in Limerick, February 15th in Cork's Everyman Theatre, and on Sunday 18th, we're back at Dublin's Three Olympia. April takes us to Galway's Town Hall Theatre, Killarney's INEC, and Belfast's Waterfront Studios. Check mcd.ie or venue for ticket sales. She wasn't naive when it mattered, and she decided to trust her own judgment with that. She'd heard what people were saying about Nat's promiscuity. He basically kept her on the phone for 40 minutes for no reason. He was waffling, there was no rhyme or reason to what he was saying, and she found that confusing and a bit strange. He ended the conversation at around 9.45am, and that was pretty much the exact time that Arlene was last heard from. I'm Nicola Talent. And you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. A victim of domestic abuse vanishes from her home in Scotland. Her estranged husband, Nat Fraser, is the chief suspect, but police find that he has a rock solid alibi. Then the tide turns and Fraser finds himself in the dock. The incredible story of tragic mum Arlene Fraser, who remains missing to this day, has fascinated Scotland for decades. And now it has been made into a campaigning podcast, which hopes to uncover the final secrets around her death. Today, I'm talking with press and journal reporter Dale Haslam about his new podcast, Vanished, the murder of Arlene Fraser and the details of her disappearance. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Firstly, I have binged this podcast. Um, you know, the thing about podcasts are you don't have to be local to be interested in in a good story or in a, you know, in this case, it's a, a very tragic murder. But nonetheless, um, when the story is well told, you can dip in anywhere in the world. Do you know, I was listening to something. I've started a, a podcast there the other day that is set in Tasmania. And I feel like I'm there. Podcasts do more for me nowadays than books. I've just lost the ability to read. I think I read too much with my work. But anyway, Dale, welcome to the podcast. And you're going to tell us about your podcast and the story of Arlene Fraser. 
who disappeared in April 1998 in Scotland. Maybe start by telling me a little bit about her, about her background and where she was living. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on. I'm a big fan of Crime World and uh, it's, it's great to be here. Uh, so we uh, we chose to focus on this story, which um, centers around events in 1998. And the woman at the, the heart of it all is a woman by the name of Arlene Fraser. So Arlene at the time uh, that she went missing in a very high profile case was 33 years old. She was a mum of two. She had two very young children, um, both of school age. And essentially, she was um, a stay-at-home mum. She had um, uh, married this man, Nat Fraser, uh, having left school with few qualifications. But she was very ambitious. She, she didn't let her lack of high school education or qualifications set her back. She, uh, as the kids grew up, she became more determined to create a life for her own outside of the house. While the kids were young, she was very happy to play that role of a, a sort of dutiful mother. She accepted that her husband would go out to work, um, have a full-time job, and that she would be the provider who made sure that the house worked, the household worked, and the kids got off to school, and uh, her husband had his sandwiches, that kind of thing. But mm. as they grew up, she wanted to find her own way in life. Um, she uh, connected with old friends from before she fell pregnant and um, used the sort of inspiration from them about their own lives to uh, figure out what she was going to do for the future. And that included going back to college to do uh, sort of evening classes in business uh, and accounting. She really did want to sort of use what she'd learned in college to consider getting a job of her own and, and going out into the world and being more than just a mum. Mm. And that was where things started to uh, to go wrong in the sense that her husband, he didn't like that. He wanted things to remain just as they'd always been. He wanted to be the sole breadwinner. He wanted his wife, Arlene, to be where he could see her at all times. And it it began to cause friction as time went on. Yeah, I'll tell you now, Nat wouldn't have been every woman's cup of tea, but Arlene seemed to meet him and just literally fall head over heels in love with him, didn't she? Bit of a whirlwind romance. Maybe her friends and family weren't uh, overly enamoured with him in the beginning or, you know, was it one of those kind of relationships that friends might have just had a little niggling feeling about him that everything wasn't quite as perfect as she was initially saying. Yeah, I think you sum it up very well. Uh, with Arlene, when she met Nat, what she liked about him was the fact that she she saw this man who had it, had it made. He had his own business. He was independent. Uh, he was on the road a lot. And so he was his own boss. She saw someone who was financially... Uh, financially free, you know, no one told them what to do and own their own house. You know, uh, for her, he was a, as she saw it at the time, he was an ideal partner because she lived at home with her family. She shared a room with her sister and she saw um, him as, as well as the physical side. She was attracted to his, mm. to how he looked. But he was a man who was financially free, owned his own house, played in his own rock band. From her perspective, what was not to like, but you are right in that her friends and family had suspicions about mm. that, even 
stage because what they saw was a man who was out on the road all the time. He was playing uh, gigs with his band, the, the Minesweepers, they were called, uh, at local pubs and um, and uh, and clubs. And people knew that Nat had a reputation for having a different woman in every port, as it were. Yeah. The thing is with Arlene, she was very intelligent. She wasn't naive when it mattered. And she decided to trust her own judgment with that. She'd heard what people were saying about Nat's promiscuity, but she actually uh, went to some of his shows to see how he behaved. Mm-hmm. And her experience was that he behaved as she expected, as she hoped he would. Uh, like a true gentleman, there was no sign of um, you know of him playing the you know the 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 cliched lead singer of a rock band, and you know he she saw a man who had his own business during the daytime, enjoyed himself playing with his uh, in this band with his friends in the evening, but that was it. And she was she was sold by that, despite what those around her were telling her about Nat's reputation. And uh, she seemed to be initially kind of happy to have that life, you know, that she was the woman at home making the sandwiches and, you know, probably minding the kids when they came along as he was out playing uh, his music and all the rest of it. But at some point, the relationship starts to falter a bit because she does start talking to people about kind of wanting out. Is that it? Yes. I mean, lots of dreadful things happen. I think, you know, this is something that we often find when we report on domestic abuse and domestic violence, that it's often not one major event that causes uh, someone to seek help. It's it's a slow, steady trickle, almost like a, um, it, 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 it starts slow and then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And there mm. are lots of little incidents with that. Um, on one, one occasion, he... Uh, he he assaulted her. He, he punched her in the stomach. Um, she she ended up going to see a um, a divorce lawyer on several occasions over the course of five years. But the thing with Nat was that every time Arlene voiced concerns, he was an expert in how to, to win around. There were occasions where she would say. I've had enough. I'm going to a divorce lawyer. I'm leaving. At one point, she spent eight weeks with her son, Jamie, mm-hmm. living in his refuge. And even then, he talked around. And it was important to consider as well the social attitudes at the time. This is the 1980s when all that was going on, the early 1990s. And the social pressure was very much on women to, you know, play the happy families to... Uh, Ignore the abuse. It, and it's great that it's different now. You mm. should that then. But back then, the, the language was different. There was no such word as coercive, you know, coercive control or yeah. gas. These are themes that we touch upon in the podcast. But she had her suspicions about Nat because he would, he would control her behavior. He would physically assault her. When she went back, he always had a way of talking around and he would make promises to keep her on side. But eventually it got to the stage where she knew that if she stayed with him, that she would end up, one of them uh, would end up in a in a precarious position. Either he would end up in jail or she would end up dead. And she, she said that to her friends on numerous occasions. So she made a decision to leave him? Yeah, she, she had a plan in mind. She been to see a divorce lawyer um, and she had calculated if, for example, there was d- divorce proceedings, 
how much she would get from the sale of the house, what that would enable her and her two children to do, assuming that she got custody. And she discussed this with uh, her friends and she was preparing to do it. She knew that if she did leave, she wouldn't be able to stay in Elgin, the, the, the town where she, she lived because of these social attitudes. It's really important in the story that um, we touch upon the, the way that Nat was perceived because Nat was the, to, to the people that he interacted with, he was a stand-up guy. He mm. was the guy who fruit and vegetables to people in shops in the town. So everyone's experience of him really was seeing him turn up at a cafe, for example, or a shop, deliver some fruit and vegetables, have a, a laugh and a joke. His, the names of his two children were written on the side of his works van. So he had this uh, character as a sort of happy-go-lucky, friendly guy. And then people would see his band play in the evening. Everyone loved that. And no matter what the evidence was in terms of what he did, including being arrested for attempted murder after strangling Arlene to the point where she was very, very close to dying, no matter what the evidence showed, the people that knew Nat wouldn't have a bad word said about him. So Arlene was very aware that if she did split up with him, she had to get as far away from Elgin as possible to sort of move out of that um, that social pressure that she would face from people that she would meet every day. Mm. And I suppose as she was facing into this difficult enough future, no matter what, she might be getting out of an abusive relationship, but she's going to be on her own, out of her environment that she knows and with her, her children. She's, um, she basically is, to move it along to the day she was, she went missing. She dropped her kid to school. You, you kind of opened the podcast on this, which I find intriguing this very, very tight timeline that she's alive one minute and on the phone to the school to question where, how her son is it or her daughter is getting home from a, a school trip and to make sure that the, the child is going to be okay. And when the school ring back, it's like 10 minutes or something. She doesn't answer the That's phone. That's right, 10 minute period, yeah. So it's a 10 minute period and, and you know, everything is normal. She's at home in her in her house. She's how can something so catastrophic happen within 10 minutes? It's a really good point. And we wanted to open, it was a, this 50 minute window between when the school receptionist at her son's school had spoken with her on the phone and when Arlene's close friend, Michelle uh, Scott, turned up at the, um, at, at the house and found no one there. That was a 50 minute window we focused on. And it's fair to say that when the school receptionist called back, so what had happened was, as you say, um, Arlene's son, Jamie, was going to Inverness on a school trip. So for those who don't know the geography, Inverness is uh, about an hour away or so from, from Elgin. So it, it, it's, a, it's a, big, a much bigger uh, place. And so it was common for children to go on school trips and Arlene had suddenly had, the, she'd seen them off to school and she was doing her housework and then had this sudden realization, oh, today's the day Jamie's going on his trip. But I don't know what plans the school have put in place to get him back. I'm going to need to call the school. So she calls the school and the receptionist says, I'm not really sure what the answer to your question is, but I'll go and find out and I'll call you back in 10 minutes. So Arlene knew that that mm -hmm. call was coming. We don't know when that call came at around 10 a.m. that morning, whether Arlene was still in the house 
whether she was, for example, in the shower, she, she may have not been in a position to yeah. uh, call. She may have been taken outside the house. Something more sinister might have happened. But what we do know is that by the time her friend arrived, um, 50 minutes after she made that phone call to the school, the house was completely empty mm-hmm. and set off this astonishing chain of events which leads us to today and is still unsolved. And of course, she could have been restrained at that point within the house and, you know, in some way not able to get to the phone. Um, That's possible. But we spoke with one of the most senior detectives in this case, and he told us that they spent several days um, examining the the house in detail, video in the house, uh, with the scenes of crimes officers there doing forensics. They didn't find any. Uh, suspicious DNA. Um, we know that Nat wasn't directly involved because he had a solid alibi. Mm-hmm. But had they of anyone who didn't fit at the house been there, they would have found it. But that's not to say that, for example, uh, the DNA of a frequent visitor, mm-hmm. uh, like Hector Dick, who was Nat's friend who was implicated in this case, uh, you know, had his DNA been found at the scene it could have been explained away by the fact that, well, of course, he would often visit his friend. But there was never anything conclusive that the police found which linked to a struggle or any kind of uh, intrusion into the house during that time window. So were they more sort of looking on the basis that she possibly went out or opened the door or went out to somebody or, you know, or she was going out and maybe was abducted? Yeah, absolutely. Everything pointed to her voluntarily leaving the house. When Michelle arrived at the house, she saw that the the washing machine was on. So the cycle had just finished, but it switched on. She saw that the Hoover was plugged in. Um, There were signs that Arlene had basically heard someone at the knock at the door, had opened the door, and then had voluntarily exited the property. Mm. It would only do so for a minute or two. But never came back. And the main challenge for detectives once they established this was to figure out why she would do that and who would who would who would turn up and what motive would that person or those people have for doing that. Mm. So what happens next? Who reports her missing and um how quickly does an investigation get underway? Well again it's important to consider the time uh, that this is set in. So this is 1998. This is pre-mobile phone time, pretty much, um, pre-internet time. So generally communications were slower than they are now, I think it's fair to say. And I think that's something we always have to remind our own audience of because people forget it's just we're so used to having, you know, 24-7 instant communication now. Yeah. But back then in 1998, things were slower and not much happened really because when Arlene's friend Michelle left the house, um, having received no answer at the door, she went home. Um, she's got no way of reaching Arlene at that point. There's no mobile phone to call. So Michelle just by the time comes back to visit again. Uh, this time she leaves a note. Uh, figuring that Arlene might have just popped to the shop or she might have uh, have gone out to an appointment. 
Around three o'clock that afternoon, Arlene was supposed to be visiting her uh, appointment at a divorce lawyer on Elgin Elgin High Street. She didn't turn up for that either. And then the kids left school at around about four o'clock after the school trip. Now, it's really important to say that the, the school is really close to Arlene's house. The kids lived a stone's throw away. We're talking a two-minute walk tops. So the kids arrive home around four um, and they find no answer. Their friend's pair, their friend lives across the road. So obviously, as would happen sometimes um, when Arlene would be uh, at college and Nat would be out working, the kids would um, go round to their friend's house across the road. So that's what they did. They went there. And then it was up to that family um, to figure out what had gone on. Um, they they called around, tried to. Uh, this is this is Graham Higgins and his wife Irene. They called around. They called Michelle to ask, "Have you seen Arlene?" They called uh, Arlene's father H- Hector and said, "Have you heard from her today?" He he uh, lived away from Elgin. He had no idea where she was. And as the night went on, the concerns started to get more acute, more serious. At one point, Jamie, and again, he was, I think, six at this time. He went across the road with a pen and paper. He wrote a note to his mum basically saying, where are you? We're we're at Mark's, the the name of his friend. You know, we came home at four. you, You weren't here. Very concerned letter written by Jamie. Left it on the doorstep and it was never attended to. So around about eight o'clock, Graham Higgins had to make this decision. I've got these kids here with me. I don't know where they're going to sleep tonight. At this point in time, Nat Fraser was on bail for attempted to murder Arlene Mm -hmm. in five weeks before. So he wasn't allowed anywhere near the house and was staying at his friend's farm about three miles away. So Graham knew that Nat wouldn't have been able to, for example, go to the house to look after the children that night. So Graham was in this position where he said, look, I've tried everything. I need to call the police. Called the police and that's when the investigation began at that point. So clearly Nat Fraser is uh, before the courts for attempting to murder his wife who's now gone missing uh, in very mysterious circumstances. Presumably the eyes of the officers are immediately on him and wondering, has he anything to do with this? Absolutely. He was not only the prime suspect, but probably the only suspect in the police's mind at that time. Because you've got to consider as well that where this is happening, Elgin, a very quiet uh, Moray town on the, the north coast uh, of the northeast of Scotland, things like this just don't happen. And so when they do, it is a case of Occam's razor that, you know, the, 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 the explanation you think it probably is, is, is the explanation. So yeah, the detectives went straight for Nat Fraser, but there was one major problem. He had a solid alibi for that day. And that really caused the detectives significant issues because what they were trying to do essentially was uh, find a chink in Nat's armor. But he had planned everything down to the last um, the last detail in terms of his movements mm. at the that Arlene went missing. And and it, it struck police as almost too perfect of an alibi. Yeah. So his alibi involved a lady friend? 
Yeah, so as we said, he uh, not performed with his band, the Minesweepers, and a few days before, I think two weeks before Arlene went missing, he uh, played a gig and he'd met the niece, actually, of one of his bandmates. And he got talking to her, they exchanged phone numbers, and he began calling her every day. But these conversations were very spontaneous, so he'd just call her uh, on the landline and they'd chat. But on this particular day, he said to her the day before, I'm going to call you at 9.48 or 9 a.m. tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Later reflected that that struck her as strange, the fact that he'd scheduled this call. And that what had happened was he and um, his, uh, his colleague had been delivering fruit and vegetables in Elgin Town Centre. And he parked his works van on a very busy street and called this woman from a very prominent phone box in Elgin. And she later told police that he basically kept her on the phone for 40 minutes for no reason. Mm. She, he was waffling. He, there was no rhyme or reason to what he was saying. And she found that confusing and a bit strange. Mm. And kind of ended the conversation at around 9.45 a.m. And that was pretty much the exact time that Arlene was last heard from. Now, very frustrating investigation um, followed because no, essentially, crime scene, nobody. And the chief suspect in the disappearance has an alibi. So every which way the police turned, they were really being thwarted. Yeah. And again, the context of the, of the time and the situation is really important because the detectives involved were from Aberdeen. Aberdeen is a couple of hours south of Elgin. And particularly at the time, the way some people in Elgin and and, and Aberdeenshire and Murray regarded these detectives was that they were, you know, these big people from the city and what do they know about the way we live? And they're coming here and they're telling us how it's going to be. There was a lot of animosity towards those police. And the detectives told us that the, the general mood was they'd go into, you know, a shop and to buy some lunch and people would be saying to them, you know, why don't you just go back to Aberdeen? So people weren't very cooperative. I wouldn't say that they were, um, that they wanted, they wanted uh, the crime to be solved. Mm. They, they saw it as an us against them thing against the police. That didn't help. And also at the time, Grampian police as they were, which is the predecessor to what is now Police Scotland, they were in the line, in the firing line because there'd been at the year earlier there'd been a prominent case in um, in Aberdeen where a, an eight year, a nine year old boy had gone missing and his body was found but there were there were missed opportunities from the police to find the body earlier and they Grampian police ended up being being um, investigated by uh, an, a sister force which found this catalogue of failings. And what the detectives told us was that at the time, they felt almost like, oh, everyone thinks we can't do our job. We're we're incompetent. We need to solve this case. Mm. So there was a lot of police. But as you say, not had a solid alibi. Mm. And there's only so much pressure they can put on a guy with a solid alibi, isn't there? I mean, they are operating within the laws and were back then. He was, you know in the police station every, every five minutes, you know, trying to dig for information, but trying to play the role as the, you know, the, the doting husband who just wanted mm-hmm. to find his wife. And 
he was very clever at playing the police off and and again making it look like he was the person who was eager to solve the case when actually he knew that it couldn't be solved because he was the one involved. And of course he was a winner in that uh, the attempted murder charge was going nowhere without the um, the victim of that. So that case well, that, was dropped that case or was did, it stay, did it stay oh, alive? It did stay alive and he actually went to prison for a year for that. Right. Uh, and then he, he got out, I think, after about seven months. But again, we get an insight into uh, Nat Fraser's personality and his the, his the way he operated in this, in the sense that he came out of jail after about seven months for that attempted murder. It was it was it's important to say it was downgraded mm-hmm. to uh, charge, but still. Uh, causing her injuries with the intent to endanger her life. So very, very serious offences. Uh, offense. He came out of jail and then it emerged that he had essentially defrauded the legal aid system. So he had said to the Crown Office, I don't have the funds for my own legal defence so that the funds were given to him from the state and then it turned out that that was a lie. Mm. So he ended up back to prison for legal aid fraud. And again, why I say this paints a picture of Nat's lifestyle is that he liked to project this image of a hardworking, self-made businessman who's who's got all this money, but he's law-abiding and wouldn't do anything to anyone. But actually, he's committing legal aid fraud because he thought he could get away with it. Mm. Now, Arlene's body has never been found, which is one of the, the key points and takeaways from the, the podcast. Um, but... At some point, the situation changed it for changed for Nat, and he was brought before the courts. So, how did that occur, and and after how much time? That's a really good question in the in this case because the time the timeline, as it as it was happening, people were wondering why it took so long for the police to uh, to get a conviction. But they had to do a lot of lateral thinking. And what happened was six months after the after Ali went missing. Um, the police decided to have a shake-up. They brought a new team in and they went over all the evidence. They went over every call, every uh, witness statement to see if they could find something. And what they found was that there'd been a uh, a missed piece of evidence that the police didn't uh, originally see through to its end. And what that evidence was, was it was a guy who called the police to say, I was in the pub last night mm-hmm. and I opened it two guys speaking about the sale of a car and it sounded really dodgy to me you might want to look into it and they didn't but then six months later this new team did so they followed these breadcrumbs and it led them to a man named Kevin Ritchie he was a mechanic who often sold and bought cars to his to friends and acquaintances and it turned out that Kevin Ritchie had sold a car, a beige Ford Fiesta, to one of Nat Fraser's best friends the day before Arlene went missing. And this was really important because what it did was give the detectives a way in. Up until that point, Nat, while he was uh, happy to speak with the police, he wouldn't ever say anything about that day. And neither would would, would his social groups, people like Hector Dick, mm. who Kevin Ritchie, he would never speak to the police voluntarily. But the sale of this car and the timing and the fact that it had only come to light and nobody had offered it up, it gave police the opportunity to arrest Kevin Ritchie, arrest Kev- 
arrest Hector Dick and see what came of it. And it was those conversations that allowed the police to uh, basically take that down. And what, what they actually did, they, they lent on Kevin Ritchie and they basically said, right, what we're going to do, we're going to set up this sting operation. So we're going to get you to arrange to meet Hector Dick in the woods. We're going to wire you up. We're going to, we're going to uh, plant some microphones in your car and we're going to get Hector speaking about it. So we want you to just raise the conversation gently and say and see what happens. They did this. They had the help from the, um, the Royal Air Force, at, uh, RAF Mossimo, setting it up and making sure everything was, was covert. And so Kevin went into the woods. He spoke to Hector and Hector started speaking about Arlene, encouraging Kevin not to say anything. And this was, for the police, was dynamite. Mm -hmm. It showed who was involved. And that paved the way for the arrest of, of Kevin, Richie, Hector Dick, and Nat Fraser in connection with the murder of, of Arlene Fraser. And when the, the case went ahead, what was the evidence against Nat? The first thing to say is that the police and the Crown made a tactical decision to drop charges against Kevin Ritchie and Hector Dick. They believed, to quote one of the detectives who's interviewed on the podcast, that it was they had more chance of getting one guy than than getting three. So they they concentrated on the person that they wanted. And the evidence essentially was, um, first of all, that. Um, that the police had used a, a lip reader to analyze what Nat had been saying while he was behind bars. And they claimed to have got Nat on tape talking about the disposable of Arlene's body, essentially saying, you'll never find her. She's, she's in pieces. If they've got no physical evidence, they can't do me for it or words to that effect. So that was the first um, part of the evidence. The second piece of evidence was the fact that um, there were there were three rings that Nat had given to Arlene, uh, an engagement ring, a wedding ring, and if you like, an apology ring after he'd assaulted her one night. And these rings um, went missing at one point and then turned up in the house a few days later. And the Crown argued that Nat, who had access to the house at this point, uh, had had planted these rings in the bathroom as a way to make it look like Arlene had, uh, had had put them there to sort of say, right, I'm done with this marriage. I'm I'm going off into the sunset to paint this false narrative. And then you also had the Hector Dix testimony. He basically said um, a few days before um, Nat, uh, Arlene went missing. Nat was talking to me about the concept of no-body convictions, the fact that so many people go missing in the UK each year and that not very many of them get found and that if the, there's no body, there's hardly any chance of a conviction. And Hector claimed that Nat had gone to the library to research this topic and, and, and got out books and that in the Crown's mind, that was evidence of pre-planning of his wife's murder. Mm. And, and well, is that nobody else had motive and nobody else had had anything to gain. So the Crown argued that Nat had been deprived of his status. He, he'd gone from this self-made uh, businessman with two kids and a house to being driven away from the house while on bail for the attempted murder, not able to see his kids, the indignity of having to 
um, stay in his friend's spare bedroom. Um, mm. he, he, all these things combined. That so circumstantial if, evidence, some of it, and it combines yeah. to create a rope. Oh. All these threads come together and create Absolutely. a case. Arlene was out of the way. He had most to gain. And the jury found these arguments compelling and, and convicted him. Convicted him. And off he went to jail. Um, of course, some solace for her family and friends that the man that carried out whatever it was he did to her was being locked up and serving a hefty life sentence for that crime. But nonetheless, as I said to you the, earlier there, the big takeout is there's still nobody. So Nat Fraser has refused to reveal where uh, Arlene lies. There's been no road to follow to try and has there been digs? Has there been any suggestion that she's in particular areas or is it just a complete mystery to date? It's a great question and it's really tricky for the detectives now because what they've got to do is get the balance right between releasing enough information to the public to lead to the maximum possible uh, chance of Arlene's body being found and keeping enough intelligence out of the public sphere so if Nat ever does reveal where she's buried that they can judge the legitimacy of that mm. and that they have I mean it was the the, the biggest uh, missing persons case in Scottish legal history and you know huge search involving uh, involving my rescue teams search dogs uh, police divers helicopters a huge um, army of, of volunteers. I think 400 people um, came out uh, on a, on a agreed day to search the woodland in the area. And you know, police have used um, modern methods since in terms of um, you know heat heat seeking uh, helicopters, etc. It's never there's never been anything conclusive, but police do have intelligence, mm. and they firmly believe that Nat knows where Arlene is, and what that would mean to the families that they would get full closure if he was able to say look she's buried here that would mean the world to them they'd be able to bury their their daughter um their their sibling their mother and he's never done that and the family believe that that's just typical of that in the sense that he likes to feel in control likes to feel um, the man at the center of things, but also they believe that if he does admit where the body is, then he'll have to admit that he was involved in the murder, something that he's refused to do. And I think Nat is still obsessed almost with the way he's regarding the Mielkin community. And he knows that if he says, look, she's here, then the game's up for him. That, mm. that won't lie to everybody over the last 25 years. But I mean, his own children's mother and I mean, the torture they must go through not knowing where she is, not having a grave to go to, um, you know, whatever about her family, who he obviously dismisses and her friends, who he obviously dismisses, but his own kid's mother and he doesn't have it in him. I mean, that's a sociopath, Dale, yeah? Well, there's a really uh, insightful story on the podcast that gives you an idea into Nat's sociopathic tendencies that some would say are there. So what happened was that he, he was sentenced and then there were uh, 
problems found with the evidence, particularly the lip reader and the rings that I mentioned earlier on. And because of those uh, those problems with the evidence, he ended up being uh, released from jail pending an appeal. In the end, he uh, he won his appeal, and the crown brought a second uh, a second court case against him, and he was re- he was resent he was he was found guilty again and jailed again. But in the interim period, when he was out in 2006, he went back to Elgin, carried on as though nothing had happened. And one night he was in this bar where two of Arlene's closest friends were. And, you know, you'd think, what would a a reasonable person do in that situation? They'd maybe think, if I get into a scrap of trouble here, I'm going back to prison. I don't, I've just been there for the last few years. I don't want to be there. I'm just going to walk out, but not now. He he won't, he uh, marched up to one of the the women. He made fun of her because she'd just done a song on karaoke. So he mocked her for that. And then he said to the two of them, oh, so where's your pal tonight then? And they both were confused at what he meant. What he meant. And one of them said, what pal, what do you mean? And he turned back to them and said, Arlene, where's your, where's your pal Arlene tonight? In front of a packed pub, and this, as you say, this is the mother of, of his children. This is his wife. He took great pleasure in uh, seeing it as though he'd won in a situation where these two women had been immensely brave to take to the stand to mm-hmm. put him behind And he saw it as well. I've beaten you, and he didn't care that the fact that he was having to joke about his 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 his, his wife to get there. It's all about um, status for now. And Dale, what um, what do you think happened to her? It's a great question, and I don't think we'll ever know. But the the most logical uh, explanation is that she would have opened the door about three weeks before that day she went missing her car had been set on fire on the drive outside the house in the middle of the night and police had their theories about what that might have been about it certainly wasn't an accident it was a deliberate um fire raising as you would call it in scotland an arson attack on the car so it stands to reason that that played a part in Arlene's disappearance we also know from what the detectives told us that Arlene never went anywhere on foot. Even if she was just going around to the corner shop, she would always drive. And so her being without a car was a big issue and Nat would have known it. So when we know that this Ford Fiesta was bought the night before, it stands to reason the most logical sequence of events was that someone known to Nat had taken the Ford Fiesta around to her house had knocked on a front door that morning and had said, oh, Nat's got you a car after it, your last one went on fire. Come and see it. Maybe take it out for a quick spin around the block so you can get used to it. She would have known this person. We don't know who this person is. And she would have trusted them. She would have got in the car thinking that she would just be going round a lap of the, uh, of the street. And... At that point, she would have been abducted. She would have been taken to a pre-arranged um, meeting spot. And either Nat or someone else known to Nat would have then 
uh, killed her and disposed of her body. And that would have fit the timeline. And it also would have explained why the car was set on fire and why this new car was bought the night before. As I say, that's the most logical explanation given what we know about the time band and what we know about the events. But I don't think we'll ever know for sure. Mm. And how has he got on in prison? Do you know? I think it's fair to say that Fraser has had mixed uh, fortunes in prison. He's twice been uh, taken to court for using a mobile phone in his cell and time has been added on to his sentence. However, in his later years, he's sort of become seen as the grandfather figure in uh, in jail and he teaches um, people how to play guitar. He's almost like a you know, a confidant for new arrivals. He's been there a long time. He can settle people in and, you know, make prison less scary for them. So he's built a lot of kudos with the prison service, it's fair to say. Mm. Uh, Whether the parole board in 2029 think highly of him or not, it remains to be seen. Mm, Because that's the point at which it will be decided whether or not he gets out and he served his time. And Arlene's family have taken great interest in this. They know that at that time, uh, the parole board will have to consider things relating to Nat's conduct in jail, as we've talked about the mobile phone incidents, but then the good things about him teaching people to play guitar, etc. What they have campaigned for is a change in the law, which would make it so that Nat has to say where Arlene's body is buried before he can get out. And in fairness to the Scottish government, they have listened to a certain extent mm-hmm. in a they introduced a new law which made it so the parole board now has to take that into account so they they will have to ask that question of him at any parole hearing in future and 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 take that into account but Arlene's family want the government to go on further and to make it a prerequisite of him being released but the Scottish government says that they can't do that because it would infringe uh, the European Convention of Human Rights. Essentially, they're, they're worried about that open, opening them up to legal challenges from people who would otherwise be allowed out on the yeah. uh, mm. Well, look, it's a fascinating story and a great cast of characters all... Um, you know, with an intimacy into the story that are interviewed across the podcast. It's called Vanished, the Arlene Fraser murder case. And it's everywhere you get your podcasts because anybody listening on here knows exactly how to find a podcast. So uh, I'd recommend it. As I said, I binged on it. A fascinating story. So Dale Haslam, thank you very much. No, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.